week. Uh, but kids were great, weren't they? All right. And they still will do their Christmas songs with Pastor David. And that actually will be on Christmas Day, on the Lord's Day, on December 25th. So uh, on that day, I'll also be preaching a special message uh, for Christmas. I'll be preaching in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which is a familiar uh, Christmas passage. And I'll be preaching on the implications uh, of Christmas, the implications of Christmas or the implications of uh, our newborn king, as we just uh, sung about. But for today, if you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, it's been a while since I've been back in this pulpit. It's been uh, almost a couple of months. As many of you know, I took a little a hiatus from preaching so that I can devote my, the little time that I have extra uh, to go through the 400-question uh, exam as the, one of the final steps uh, for completing my elder ordination. And I'm getting down. I'm, I'm almost done. So pray for me on that. Uh, really looking forward to, to putting that out of the way because it's, it's, uh, it's a bear. But, you know, we take uh, you know, church leadership seriously at this church. Um, as our Bible study, we looked at First and Second Timothy and the pastoral epistles and the qualifications of elders. Uh, we want to make sure that our elders know how to shepherd the flock of God according to the word of God. And so it's very important to... Covenant Baptist uh, and Pastor Swan is very important to us here as we, as we look to move forward with the church plant. So, but yeah, open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to look at, uh, we'll continue to look at what Jesus has to say about the law of God and how or if it applies to us today. So I'm going to be reading, if you recall, I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and we came to this passage uh, where Jesus speaks about the law of God in uh, verses 17 uh, through 19, and even verse 20. And I've really been taking a lot of time to really meditate upon these and study this, this idea and the topic about the law of God. And I'll confess, the more that I study, the more it really grows my love for God's word. Uh, as we study what the law of God means to the life of a believer. There's a lot of questions, there's a lot of nuances, there's a lot of um, even different positions that different theologians take, uh, even in the Reformed circles, and the Reformed Baptists, and the Reformed Presbyterian circles. Uh, so we're going to look at today, the last time I had mentioned that we we're going to look at how the law of God applies to the, to, to the believer today. But what I really want to do is sort of just hit the brakes and dissect this passage uh, even more. Get into the weeds with this passage because I think it's really going to be helpful. So I'm going to read the text again. Uh, again, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 uh, through 19. The word of the Lord says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach the holy word of God, 
Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, that we, Father, because of our sinful state, we cannot hear, hear you clearly in your word, and it takes, it takes effort, it takes um, meditation, it takes uh, study, Father, to hear from you clearly, and we pray, God, we know without the power of the Holy Spirit, God, we cannot understand your word. So we pray, God, and I pray as I seek to explain this text as I see it in your holy word, that you would be honored and glorified, Father, that you would use this word to deepen our love for the law of God, that you would use this word to encourage us, equip us, even convict us uh, when and where necessary, Father, so that we would display the glorious splendor of Christ in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we look at our world, if it's not obvious, we're living in a Romans 1 type of world. We're living in a Romans 1 type of world. If you read through Romans 1 and look at the progression that God gives these people over to their their depravity and their evil, sinful desires, it's easy to see that like the, our culture really coincides with this Romans 1 type of world. In verse 18, he talks about a depraved people or, or nation who suppresses the truth in their unrighteousness. Verse 21, they know God or know of God, but do not honor him as God or give thanks. And it says in verse 24, God has given this people or these people over to its lust. Verse 26 says God has given them over to their degrading passions. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And when you read in the text in Romans 1 where it says God has given them over, there's, a, there's a, almost like a judicial uh, underpinning of that word. It's a judicial term that God is giving them over to what they want. And isn't that what we're seeing in our world today? God has definitely given our culture and our country over to a depraved mind, hasn't he? In verse 29, it actually says, being filled, these types of people who continue in their sin, and God continues to to give them over to their sin. It says this, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, excuse me, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, they are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's interesting that that is in all of those other horrendous sins is dishonor and disobedient to parents. God takes the fifth commandment very seriously. Verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Think of verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, these people... They know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but give heartily approval to those who practice them. Isn't that the world that we're living in? Doesn't that perfectly describe our culture, this culture of death? But I want to ask you, what is the root of this sinful progression that we see in Romans 1? What is the root of all of the gross sin that is being flaunted in our society today. What's the root of it? Man's love for sin, right? Yes, the Bible teaches that. That we sin because we want to, because we love sin. Absolutely. 
But under this desire to sin and to do these evil things because mankind wants to, underneath all that, there lies a heart that seeks to live autonomously. A heart that seeks to live autonomously. The root of this is what's called autonomy. Autonomy is a word that, that has two, Latin, two meanings. Auto, autos, excuse me, in the Greek, means self. Nomi, autonomy. Nomi comes from the Greek word namas, which means law. Autonomy simply means self-law. Man's problem is that <clears throat> uh, he does not want to live according to a standard outside himself. Man's problem is that he wants to determine what his own standard of morality is. He wants to be governed by his own self-law. He wants to live autonomously, self-law. The opposite of autonomy is theonomy. It's theonomy. It's sort of a buzzword over the last few years, and it, and it applies to the scripture today. We're going we're gonna to go into that. But theonomy is the opposite of autonomy. Theonomy comes from two words, theos, which means God, and then we know that uh, onomy, nemos, means law. So God's law is simply what that means. So you either have autonomy or you have theonomy. And as one theologian said, you can't have anything else. You either have theonomy. This is either personal in the culture, in a nation. You either have God's law or you have autonomy. You either have God's law as the standard or anything else is self-law and you've made your own form of governance and you've made unto your own mind what the standard of morale is. So what is theonomy in greater detail? I'm sure many of you have heard that over the last months or years. It's kind of being thrown out there. Well, the late Greg Bonson puts it this way in one of his works. He says, Every ethical decision assumes some final authority or standard, and that will either be self-law, which we said is autonomy, or God's law, theonomy. While unbelievers consider themselves the ultimate authority in determining moral right or wrong, believers acknowledge that God alone has that position or prerogative. He goes on to say, The position which has come to be labeled theonomy today thus holds that the word of the Lord is the sole, supreme, and unchallengeable standard for the actions and attitudes of all men in all areas of life. Our obligation, he says, to keep God's commands cannot be judged by any extra-scriptural standard such as whether its specific requirements, when properly interpreted, are congenial or agreeable to past traditions or modern feelings or practices. You get what he's saying there? He's saying our obligation to keep God's commands cannot be judged by anything outside of Scripture, such as whether these commands and these requirements fit our traditions or our feelings about how we feel about something or how we practice things for all of our life. Well, in a more recent work, Joseph Boot, in his book, The Mission of God, defines theonomy this way. 
He says, quote, Theonomy simply means God's law and implies the abiding validity of the moral law in every sphere of life, including the civil, so that the general equity of those laws with civil or judicial implications should be candidly applied in society. In other words, the way that Joseph Boot defines theonomy is that God's word is the absolute standard, and the law of God in the Old Testament has validity and uh, perpetuity for all of the world in every circumstance, for every person, for every culture, for every country, for every fill-in-the-blank, the standard is God's law, and that's theonomy. And there was a time in our history where there was a group of people that lived this out in a way that has never been lived out before, and that was the Puritans. If you study the Puritans, they may not have gotten, they may not have gotten everything right, but they were theonomists in, in their core. They were theonomists in their core, and they sought to live out every area of their life with the absolute standard of the law of God. And Joseph Boot, in the same work, he puts it this way. He says, the Puritan's goal was, quote, submission to God in familial, social, economic, academic, political, educational, ecclesiastical, and every other sphere of life. Their principle of interpretation of the Bible was the hermeneutic of surrender, not suspicion. And God's word was the final word in all things. To abrogate the law of God in any area of life was unthinkable to the Puritans. And it was considered an affront to God. Today in our text, Jesus upholds the entirety of the law of God. And my contention today is that Jesus in this text upholds the perpetuity and the validity of God's law. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good. And Paul here in this text presupposes that there's a wrong way to use the law. And there is absolutely a, law, a wrong way to use the law. And the Pharisees use the law in the wrong way. And so when I talk about the law being valid and perpetual for today, what I don't mean as a, as a way of salvation, the law was never meant to be a way of salvation. And that's how the Pharisees used it in the wrong way. They used it as a mean of works righteousness, meaning if I follow the law, I can earn righteousness with God. But that's not how the law is to be used. It wasn't how it was ever to be used. So I want to be clear when I'm talking about the validity of the law that it doesn't mean that it's ever a way for works righteousness or a means to salvation. The last time, if you remember, which I probably, you probably don't, it's been over a month, almost two months. Uh, the last time that I came up here and we looked at this text, I looked specifically on how Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law in many ways, did he not? All of the prophecies. He fulfilled the law as becoming our high priest, as becoming our prophet, our great prophet. He also fulfilled the law by becoming our great high king. And that was all well and good, and that was absolutely true. Uh, but quite frankly, that was more of a topical sermon because it wasn't exactly what Jesus was saying in the text. 
And so that's why I wanted to, in, in this sermon, and what I've been truly mulling over over the past six weeks or so, is what is Jesus saying? Let's get down to the actual words that he's using, because I think it'll clear up some of our things we've heard or misconceptions about this text. Let's, let's truly exegete the text in a way where we're looking at every single word and the usage of the word. So we're going to get a little bit technical today, but I think it's important as we're looking at Jesus defining the law of God for the believer today. And I mentioned Greg Bonson earlier. I, I so appreciate his works, and, and much of what I'm bringing to you is inspired by reading his works on this topic of the law of God, um, whether it's his lectures, whether it's his books. Uh, highly recommend if you have anything of Greg Bonson to go out uh, and read it. He, he died really early in the, in the 90s. Uh, he was well ahead of his time. Uh, he brought back many of the teachings from the Reformation period when it came to the law of God, um, also when it comes to apologetics. So let's look at our text. Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So let's break this up and let's look at it in its parts. First, he says, do not think, okay? He says, do not think. Now, the way that this is constructed in the Greek is he could either have anticipated that they were thinking that, or he was saying it in a way that says, do not even begin to think that I came to abolish the law. Okay, so if you remember, Jesus was speaking with authority, as opposed to the rabbis who were always quoting other authorities. Jesus was speaking with authority, I say to you. So they could have very well been speak, uh, thinking, who is this new teacher? Is he bringing a new law? Is he, is he negating the law of Moses? And, and Jesus says, no, don't even begin to think that I came to abolish the law. And that word abolish means to absolutely destroy, to bring down, to, to shatter into pieces. And Jesus says it twice. Look at the verse. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish. He repeats himself twice, and we'll see he doubles down, triples down in verse 18. He says he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says law or the prophets, that's the terminology used for all of the scripture, all of God's word, the law or the prophets. He came to abolish none of it. He's referring to all of the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting to note, if you think, Christ did fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies when it came to the coming Messiah, right? Amen? And although Christ did fulfill all those messianic prophecies, nothing in this text or the context supports the view that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. It would make no sense for him to say, I came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Like logically, that just doesn't fit. And also, as we'll see in verse 19, clearly states that he's not talking about prophecies of the Old Testament. What is he talking about? He's talking about the commands of the Old Testament. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commands. He's not talking about fulfilling the messianic prophecies, although he did to the T. 
Jesus then repeats this to emphasize that he did not come to abrogate or put an end to any of the Old Testament laws. He says, I did not come to abolish. He repeats himself, but to fulfill. Now, that's the key phrase that we need to understand. What did Jesus mean when he says, but to fulfill? Well, it's important to note that whatever Jesus did mean by saying he came not to abolish, but to fulfill, whatever that does mean to fulfill, it doesn't mean he came to end or abrogate the Old Testament law. You've heard this argument that, no, Jesus, no, he came to fulfill it, so it's, it's done. It's, it's over. Well, he would contradict what he just said twice. If fulfillment means the end of, then Jesus is saying, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to end it. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to end it. That doesn't make any logical sense. So whatever Jesus means by saying, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill, whatever fulfill means, it doesn't mean end. It doesn't mean abrogate. It doesn't mean destroy because he just said it twice that he was not doing that. So what does he mean by fulfill? The word is plerao in the Greek. It has a wide range of meaning to fill up, to perfect, or to fulfill This word, as I said, is the key to this passage, and it reflects Christ's coming and how he's relating to the Old Testament laws. There have been many answers that have been offered. I gave you one of them that, well, fulfill means he he obeyed it and and it's ended, or he fulfilled all the prophecies, and so the Old Testament doesn't apply, which, again, doesn't logically make sense. And I said it just a minute ago, but you you may hear that, well, Jesus, when he says he fulfilled it, it means that he came to obey it. Have you ever heard that? That he didn't come to abolish it, no, he came to obey the law, and that's fulfilling all of the Old Testament law. Now, while he did perfectly obey the law of God, that is the truth, he didn't sin once. He lived a life that you and I need to live of perfect righteousness. That's not at all what he means. If you look at that word, but, he's contrasting what he just said he's not doing. And that word, but, in the Greek is Allah, okay? And there's two different types of ways to contrast in the Greek. There's another word called de. Allah is a word that contrasts directly to what was just said. De is more of a general contrast. So what I'm saying is, is whatever Jesus is saying here, when he says, but, that word that's used in the Greek is, is a cue to us that whatever he's about to say is a direct contrast to what he just said. So we've got to figure out this word plerao, what is its meaning that fits a direct contrast to not destroying the law or not abolishing the law. Y'all following me? Okay, good. When Jesus says he did not come to abrogate, destroy the law of the prophets, he's making a direct contrast, plerao, as I mentioned. So it wouldn't make sense to say that Jesus didn't come to abolish, but he came to obey the law. That's not a direct contrast to abolishing the law. Does that make sense? An example would be like, 
If I were to say, I did not come here today to preach the word, but to obey the word. There could be truth to that. I'm going to obey the word. I'm going to be, you know, uh, kind and loving. But if I were to come and say, hey, I didn't come to preach the word, but to obey it. You'd look at me sideways like, what are you talking about? Because there's no direct contrast. Now, if I said, I didn't come to preach the word, but to read the word. Okay, there's a more of a direct contrast, and that would make sense. So again, we've got to figure out what plerao means and how it directly contrasts what he just said before it. So fulfill, that word plerao, can mean to end, but again, that would be contradictory from what he's saying. I did not come to abolish, but to end it. That's contradictory. Or fulfilling the prophecies. That argument doesn't hold up. For Jesus to say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill all the prophecies, that argument doesn't hold up because it doesn't directly contrast what he just said. But also, he mentions the law. So you got a problem there. If someone wants to argue, you know, Jesus came to fulfill all the messianic prophecies, well, he said the law or the prophets. So you have a problem there as well. It would be like saying, I did not come to end, abolish, destroy the Old Testament commands or law or the writings of the prophets, but I came to fulfill the messianic prophecies. It just doesn't make any logical sense. Plus, you still have to deal with verse 19. You still have to deal with verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. Verse 19 is about the commandments. Whoever then annuls one of these commandments. Now, verse 19, if you look at your if you look at your Bible, Jesus says, whoever then. Now that then is very key to this text because the then is a word in the Greek that means therefore or accordingly or consequently or these things being so. So whatever Jesus is saying, here it comes to verse 19. He says, because of all of this, because of everything I just told you, therefore, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches these, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, there's nothing about fulfilling messianic prophecies. He's tying, annulling the smallest commands of God. He's tying all of that to what he just said about not coming to abolish or to destroy the law. So the idea that the fulfill means to just fulfill all the messianic prophecies, it just doesn't hold up. So what does plerao, what does this mean? What does this word mean and how does it fit into the context of the passage? Well, plerao, although mostly is translated as to fulfill or to perfect, it also has been translated as to confirm or to establish, or to set in place, okay? Two times in the Old Testament lexicon, which is the translation to Greek, two times plerao is used to establish something, and that's in 1 Kings 1.14 and Song of Solomon 5.14. Given the context of this passage, oh, and also plerao has and was used in extra-biblical writings in the Greek 
and translated as establish or confirm or to set. So given the context of the passage and everything that we just walked through, I believe that that is the correct interpretation of that word plerao. I don't think fulfill gives it the fullest meaning. So if we look at what Jesus is saying here in the, in the context of what we looked at, in the relationship to the commands of the law, in the stark contrast that he uses in the word Allah, it seems to me that Jesus is saying that he did not come to abolish the law, no, but to confirm it or to establish it. This is not some new whimsical idea. This has been an interpretation throughout all of church history, not by many, but Charles Spurgeon, when he spoke about this text, he said the very exact same thing. Uh, The theologian John Murray, John Calvin, and many others held to this translation because doesn't it make more sense when you look at it that way? When you see Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to establish. I did not come to abolish, but to confirm the law. And look at the rest of chapter 5. What does Jesus go on and do? Does he talk about the fulfilling of the law and how he fulfilled the messianic prophecies? Does he go on and talking about how he perfectly obeyed and that way fulfilled the law of God? No, look at the rest of the chapter. What does he talk about? He talks about the commands of the law. You've heard that the ancients said, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you. And we're going to get into those because Jesus isn't establishing a new standard He's correcting the Pharisees' misinterpretation and application of the law. And he's reestablishing, if you will, or confirming the validity and the perpetuity of his law as he corrects the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the law. And then in verse 18, he doubles or triples down. Look at what he says here. For truly I say unto you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, see there, Mark, people would say, well, see, and the King James actually says, until all is fulfilled. It says, nothing shall pass until all is fulfilled. So this, again, is, Mark, the prophecies of Christ being fulfilled. But if we take a closer look at this, first, Jesus is saying, not the smallest yoda, which is the smallest stroke of the Hebrew alphabet. He said, until heaven and earth pass. Until heaven and earth, will heaven and earth pass? Has heaven and earth passed yet? I still see earth here. Heaven and earth have not passed. Until heaven and earth have passed, not the smallest stroke of the law will pass. Then he says, till all is accomplished. That's hung some people up. Again, some versions say, until all has been fulfilled. But if you take, again, if you take a a deeper dive and you you think about, what is he talking about until all is accomplished? All of what? All of what? What is Is he talking about all of the law, all of the prophecies? This is where the works of people who are smarter than me, uh, I've taken a year and a half of Greek, okay, Uh, People smarter than me come into play because 
when he says at the end of verse 18, when he says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some people might say, what is the all? Is the all the law? Is the all, uh, what does the all mean? Well, the all can't be the law because in Greek, words to be connected to each other, they have to be in the same gender. Okay, so in the text here, all is in the neuter general gender and the law is in the masculine gender. So we can't be talking about nothing shall pass away until all of the law is accomplished or all of the prophecies are accomplished. In the Greek, that would not make sense. Okay, so what is he talking about? Accomplished. Um, what to be accomplished? Well, that word in the Greek is genomai. Genomai means to be to to come into existence, to be uh, to be born. It can even mean to be born. Uh, genomai, or to happen, or to come to pass. That word has been used. So Jesus is saying here that not the smallest part of his law will pass until all things come to pass. And the interesting thing about the Greek language, friends, is that there's no order in the sentence. Okay, so if you ever learn a different language, like I said a, a sentence in Spanish the other day, and I taught my children what I said, and they, why did you say it this way and not this word first? We know that languages don't match with English. The Greek language is especially that way. That you can have words way at the end of the sentence, but because of their tense and the mood that it's in, you know it's connected to something at the beginning of the sentence. Okay, So what Jesus is saying here, he's using a literary device that was used common back then to emphasize what's being communicated. So you could really take that last part of the text and put it at the beginning, and you can read it like this. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away... Until all that happens will happen, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. He's repeating himself in a different way. It's a literary device to make his emphasis. Until all heaven and earth pass away, until everything that's going to happen will happen. That means like all of time, basically, until Christ comes back and judges the world. Until that time, Jesus is saying, not the smallest stroke. Not the smallest letter shall pass from the law. So what does this mean to us? What does it mean that the law of God, as we see here today, or that I see is clear, that the Old Testament is still valid in its entirety? Now from here we would need a few more hours to go into the law of God and see that there are certain aspects of the law of God that are no longer, even though that we observe them, we don't, for instance, we don't sacrifice animals. Those were Old Testament, those were laws from God. He gave, right? But that, that was totally done when Christ became our ultimate sacrifice. So we don't abrogate the law. We still look how Christ totally became the ultimate sacrifice and that the Old Testament saints sacrificed animals looking forward to their, their Messiah. So from here, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, ground to cover is what I'm looking for to determine, okay, because somebody could take this literally, okay, I got to go now sacrifice animals, okay? But here's, here is my 
contention. Many common-day Christians have the view that only what's repeated in the New Testament from the Old Testament is what I should obey. Have you ever heard that before? If it's repeated in the New Testament, then it's binding to the New Testament believer. But I have come to the understanding that that's, that's nowhere in the Bible. And Jesus is saying here that the Old Testament is valid, it's perpetual. So my contention is that we should have the opposite view. Our opposite view should be this. Unless God in the New Testament has, I don't want to say abrogated, but unless God has ended certain elements of the Old Testament law in the New Testament, we should take the Old Testament as binding to the New Testament believer. That's why we're going through the Ten Commandments. There are a lot of commandments in the New Testament that aren't repeated in the Old Testament, like bestiality, right? So is that still a sin because it wasn't in the New Testament? Of course not. Okay, but we should reframe our thinking that just because we think that uh, it's not in the New Testament, that it's not binding to the Christian, here Jesus is explicit, and we'll go through in future weeks how it wasn't just Jesus, even though that should be enough. He is God. But the New Testament writers completely agree with Jesus. In Paul in Romans chapter 3, where he says, Do we nullify the law through faith? He says, By no means. No, on the contrary, we establish the law. Okay? So we ought to have the idea that the law of God is good, that the law of God is for the believer, unless God specifically says it's not in the New Testament. And this is, the, this is the perception that the Puritans had, okay? That they wanted to conform everything, every area of their life to the law of God, to their family, to the civic realm, everything in the culture. They wanted to conform it to the law of God. So my encouragement and my really challenge to all of us is, first, don't look at those laws that are outside of our self, right? Like, okay, civil laws, what should the government obey? First, we need to look at our own heart, and we need to look, are we, do we have the perception that God's law is good, that God's laws are moral and just in the Old Testament, and are you obeying God's word, all of God's word? Scripture alone and all of Scripture should be sufficient and is sufficient for us. Are we obeying God in our family life? Are we obeying the law of God in our family life? You know, the laws that God gave to Israel when it came to the family. Deuteronomy 6, 4, these words I shall give to you, and you shall bind them around your neck. And then he says you shall teach them to your children diligently when you walk by the way. You know, someone might say, oh, that's for Israel. Well, is it? Was that a moral and just law that God gave to his people? Why isn't it moral and good for us now? It is. We ought to be teaching our kids morning, afternoon, every chance we get, not just conceptually, but opening up the word of God and passing on these precepts and the good law of God and the gospel to our kids. Well, to conclude, I want to ask you, what is your perspective on the law of God? When you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, what is your perspective? Do you love his law? Can you say like the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day or do you think it's something that's cumbersome that is 
just a burden to you, and that just seems so legalistic. You know, John Calvin said it best on the law in the life of the believer. He says it, quotes, promotes genuine liberty rather than antinomian licentiousness. I mean, it actually gives you liberty because when you're in Christ, you're promised that you have the Holy Spirit that will enable you to obey God's law. And with that comes blessing and happiness and joy when we serve our Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Well, I'm going to end with a summary of God's law found in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 and parts of Deuteronomy. And uh, Greg Bonson puts it in a way that I can't improve upon, so I'm going to end with his quote. And this, speaking of how God's people saw the law of God in Deuteronomy, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, he says, quote, the law is perfect. You know, sometimes I think we think that that's not true. It's going to stop. The law, do you think the law is perfect? You know, we're going to get into the civil laws. We were talking about this the other night, uh, last night. We're talking about the civil laws that God gave Israel. Were those morally just laws? Because some of us would balk and say, wow, those were really harsh. Those are really bad laws. But God gave them, and God is the good lawgiver. So we need to check our hearts. We can have the discussion on whether or not these things apply, but we, but we shouldn't come to God's law and say, oh, that's, that's bad, because God is good, and his law is good. Amen. Okay. The, back to the quote. Quote, the law is perfect, faithful, righteous, pure, and true. It is enlightening and makes one makes one wise. The law inspires reverence for God. It leads to repentance. And there's scripture text for everything I'm saying here. It leads to repentance, revival, and restoration. The law restrains sin, is wondrous, and is the source of blessedness. The law brings strength, peace, liberty, comfort and hope our response to the law then should be grateful praise delight joy and love is the law a source of blessedness to you or is it a source of burden to you if it's a if it's the latter let's repent let's come to christ uh, repent of our ways and let's look upon god's law as good when it's used lawfully, as Paul said to Timothy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your law. We thank you for your word. It is perfect. It restores our soul, restrains our sin, leads us to Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us, as Paul said, to use the law lawfully, and that the law is good. Father, we also know that the law brings about wrath because... It shows us our sin and shows us our need of a Savior. Father, I thank you that you preserve these words throughout the ages, what many people would call outdated, not progressive, old words. Father, they're the very words of life. Help us, God, to have an accurate view of the law. Father, help us 
to seek to conform every area of our life to your word. Oh God, oh, oh God, it's so hard, Lord. It's so hard when things that we do and things that we practice come into conflict or things we say come into conflict with the very word of God. How sinful we are to try to rationalize those things away. But God, if we are to ever, if we are to ever, Father, seek for our land to enact just and right laws, to change its way from its pagan, autonomous ways. If we were to ever do that, Lord, help us first, Father, be able to first convict our own hearts and, and get the, the log out of our own eye and conform our lives to the law of God and not live in ways that are autonomous, but live in a way that's theonomous, God, according to your holy and righteous law. Father, help us to not use the law in a way that it's not intended to be used, God. Help us to be diligent studiers of the word, Father, so that we would accurately handle the word of truth. And may you, Father, be given all the praise and the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.